And we have a wonderful opportunity this morning. We have a guest speaker. So I'm going to invite forward Rob Chadwick. Rob is the EFCA's district superintendent for the Pacific Northwest, which is a lot in the words in the title. <laughs> and uh, he might look familiar to you. We have uh, watched a couple of his videos as uh, he was candidating for the role. Uh, he's formerly been serving as a pastor in Colorado, though he is not a newcomer to the Pacific Northwest. Um, they went to seminary out here. So we are uh, thrilled to be able to uh, have Rob with us. Rob and Beth came up this morning from Vancouver, Washington uh, to be with us. So let me just pray for you as you share God's word. Dear God, Lord, I thank you for my brother. I thank you for the fact that you have made us partners in the gospel. God, it is not just partners within this congregation, but as we are many churches in many places, God, uh, we get to come together as your family and see you move in mighty ways. So thank you for Rob and for Beth for coming all the way up here to share God's word with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. I bring greetings from Brian Sharp. I, uh, I got to know Brian a little bit this last year. He, he came out in, I think, 2020 to the Rocky Mountain District and in March, when I was asked to put my name in for the district superintendent position, I was at a conference, and I said, Brian, I need to talk to you. <laughs> so we sat for an hour, and he shared. But I sent him a message saying, I'm going to be at Elam. And he said, tell the church that we love them, and they're in our prayers. They're in our hearts and in our prayers. And so uh, Brian brings you greetings from, and not snowy all the time. Colorado's sunny all the time. So... Just remember that. It's, everybody thinks it's always snowy there. It snows a little bit, get big snows, and then the sun comes out and it dries up everything. District superintendent, what in the world does that mean? I, my wife and I have been trying to figure it out. Superintendent kind of sounds like you oversee an apartment complex or, or something. I don't know. If you don't know what that means, you're in good company. Just over 20 years ago, I was on staff, the first free church I was on staff at in Littleton, Colorado. By the way, um, Ryan shared, I was at uh, Central Bible Church for a couple years in Portland, Oregon, and then I was at Grace Community Church in Gresham, Oregon for seven years. So I was in the Northwest, and then I've been 24 years in Colorado. But I was sitting in a service like this, and the district superintendent came, Greg Fell at the time, and he was up sharing, and my college director, Jeff Vanderwall, was sitting next to me. And as Greg started sharing, Jeff kept leaning over and grabbed me. He goes, I know this guy. I've met him someplace. And I'm like, Jeff, shh, I don't know who this guy is. Just let him talk. So Greg kept talking and talking. And then Jeff would go, I, I know I've met this guy before. And just as Greg was finishing up his sermon, Jeff goes, I know who he is. He pulled me over and gave me a traffic ticket in Colorado Springs. <laughs> Our district superintendent was a volunteer with the Colorado Springs Police Department, and the week before, he had pulled over our college guy, Jeff, and actually given him a ticket. So that was my first introduction to district superintendent. Have you ever had a, a day that changed everything? When I was a youth pastor, I used to do this thing with students. We called it the good, the bad, the ugly. And I'd have students put on a little card, something in their life that was really difficult that changed everything. And it was amazing what kind of stories I would get from students, even at those early ages. And they would share about things, tragedies that had happened in their, in their lives. And 
then I'd always ask him, what'd you learn from it? And that was always profound. Students, that kid that recognized that God's fingerprint was even in the difficult situations. Here's a couple things in my life that changed everything. This is me. This is not really my birth, but you can see I was a pretty big baby. I was over nine pounds. My mom had to have a C-section, and it wasn't my birth that really changed everything. It was the day that I was born on. I was supposed to be born the day before, but because it was a C-section, they had to have uh, blood for the transfusion, and they didn't have the right kind of blood. So they waited to the very next day to my mom's protest, which was April 1st. 1969. So I am an April Fool's baby, and that changed everything. I going through middle school and high school, everybody knew it was my birthday. Ah, there's Rob, the April Fool's baby. Okay, so that, that definitely changed stuff. Here's another moment that changed everything. Not kindergarten, but if you notice the little notch in my hair right there, the day before kindergarten pictures, some of the boys were, were daring each other to cut a little bit of hair. And I didn't want to be outdone by anybody. I took a big chunk of hair and just chopped it off, not thinking that the very next day was kindergarten pictures. And so my dad, who cut my hair, he had a little you know, hair razor cutter. He, he spent a long time trying to get that just right. And he got to a point where he realized if he went any higher, uh, he, they'd probably you know, turn him into the child protection services or something. So I, that's my kindergarten picture. That's, that's all I got from kindergarten. Here's another major change in my life. On the left, my wife and I, our three kids, the next picture over my son Wes, my daughter-in-law Abby, and our only granddaughter Olivia. They live in Vancouver. Olivia is now 17 months old. My daughter Sarah and her fiancé Dakota who are out in North Carolina, and then my daughter Rachel, who we left our baby in Colorado with her soon-to-be, if Dakota's watching, we're waiting, buddy, um, soon-to-be fiancé, and that's our family. But 33 years ago, I asked my wife Beth to marry me on the Continental Divide, Monarch Pass in Colorado, and it was a special spot for us. It's where our family would have reunions with family from all over, uh, from Canada to California to Michigan, and we'd all converge there. And I asked Beth to marry me. And then uh, throughout the years, the, the ministry opportunities, each of those kids is a day that changed my life, and, and they continue to have great impact, as families always do. Here's another day that changed my life. Last March, I got a call from... Uh, first of all, Bruce Redman, who used to be our church planning director in the Rocky Mountain District, he's now with the Free Church down in the Southeast District, which is huge. It's, it's Georgia, Florida, Tennessee. It's a really large area. And Bruce called me in March and says the Pacific Northwest District is looking for a district superintendent, and I think you ought to put your name in. And then the very next day, Barry, our new district guy, who actually goes to Brian's church, Brian Sharp's church there in Colorado Springs, he called me and says, the Pacific Northwest is looking for a district superintendent, and I think you ought to put your name in for this position. My dad used to always say, when God calls your name twice, you should pay attention. And so my wife and I talked about it, and then we ended up going down this road eight months. And Ryan, I, the first time I saw Ryan was on a video, you know, talking to the district board, 
and having chats back and forth. And then we came out in the summer and met the board and families. And then we drove about 1,000 miles to meet as many pastors as possible. And then in the last couple months since we got here, we got here the beginning of November. We went to a district refresh conference. And then we have been in, up to this point, six different churches on Sunday mornings. And I got to say, there's a little bit of nervousness each time I come because I don't know what I'm walking into. But I always get to that point where we're singing the songs. And it's, it's the same way no matter what country you go to, even if you don't understand the song because you're singing it in a different language. There's something that molds hearts together as we worship God. And I really appreciated that this morning. If you've got chains, he's a chain breaker. And I needed to hear that. Here's a couple things about our district. You may not know much about what's going on in our district. I did do a little bit of research on Elam, by the way. I was telling Ryan, I thought, Elam, that's kind of a, you know, a cool name, maybe like a church planner came up with. And then I'm reading your history. You're one of the oldest free churches in the nation. I, I guess there's kind of a little bit of a fight over this, but, uh, but I was, yeah. <laughs> That's so amazing. What a, what a legacy of faithfulness in this area. Thank you for that. Forty churches, give or take. There's two camps that are connected to our free church, the Pacific Northwest District. You've got Black Lakes and you've got um, Oak um, uh, I just spaced on it. I'm meeting the director on Wednesday. Don't tell him that I, forget, I forgot the name of it. Two camps, six regions. See, we have regional pastors, one pastor in each of those regions. So Ryan is a regional pastor that oversees a group of pastors in kind of the east, sound, south of Seattle area. So Ryan has a really key role in that. There's about 500 miles from the Canada border to the California border, and the Pacific Northwest is western Washington, Western Oregon, basically down the, um, the I-5 corridor. The free church in general, the, just in the n- nation, there's over 1,600 congregations. So on any given Sunday morning, there's millions of people in evangelical free churches worshiping just like here at Elam. There's 17 districts in the U.S., and so I meet with district superintendents. I've just started into this. There's 17 district superintendents like me, and we spend time together once a month on video. We get together in Minnesota. We talk about best practices, how to love churches, how to love pastors, how to raise leaders, how to plant churches. And then, and you're connected already as you talk about with your missionary work. Uh, The Free Church has over 600 missionaries in 50-plus countries. If you know the story of the Free Church, we really didn't start as an association first. It started as a bunch of free churches who decided because they were doing mission work in other countries, it was a real key, high value for the Free Church. These little churches said, why don't we partner together in mission work? And these Scandinavian and Norwegian churches decided to partner together in foreign missions. Here's a question for you. What are some seismic shifts? If you think of days that changed everything in the Bible. What would be some things you might throw out? Things that happen in the Bible that, and maybe a seismic shift is, is a tough one to understand, but I had a professor in Bible college at Multnomah, David Needham, he used to say, it's like this, there's a play going on a stage, and as, as we're reading through Scripture, the curtain slowly opens. 
So you think through the, the, the story of the Bible. What are major days? Just throw them out. What would be some days that you might go, that was a major change in the Bible? Creation. Creation. Yeah, what was the other one? Flood. Yeah, flood. That's a huge seismic shift. What? Jesus' birth. Yeah. Any others? The what? Passover. Yeah. Pentecost. Man, you... You, you, you're, tell, you're basically doing my sermon, right? <laughs> creation and fall. I mean, you, uh, creation and God is communing with man in the garden, and, they, and man and woman are actually walking with God in this perfect environment. And they rebel against God, and there's this separation. That is a seismic shift. That changed everything. The Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, when And when Abraham meets God, and God says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and I'm going to give you a nation, and and it's going to be, you won't even be able to count how many people are descendants of yours, but by the way, I'm going to bless everybody else through you, and people that bless you, I'm going to bless, and people that curse you, I'm going to curse. And there's this promise that God's going to make a way, and you could say the Davidic covenant and other places where God is saying, I am going to provide a way for you. And then there's the birth of Jesus, where God became flesh. In John chapter 1, he moved into the neighborhood. That God actually, he got a body and he lived with us and he taught and he, and he showed us how to live. And I always told my, our people at Table Mountain Church in Colorado that Jesus got up every morning just like we do and he prayed, God, Father, I want to do your will and I can only do it through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, just like we do. And he showed us how to do that. That every day we get up and we go, I want to do the Father's will and I can only do it through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That was Jesus. And then the death. You think of these disciples that are following Jesus around and they're seeing him do these miracles. They even saw him raise people from the dead. And then Jesus dies and what did the disciples do? They they ran. They, they They thought everything had fallen apart at that point. Even Peter says, I'll never deny you, and he denies Jesus three times. And then, of course, Pentecost. Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1.8, he says, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. You will receive power. The word is dynamite. And then there's Acts 9. You might not have had this on your list, as a seismic shift, but I would, I'm going to argue this morning that this moment where, where Paul or Saul, by the way, it doesn't matter which name you call him, Saul is his Hebrew name, Paul is his, his, his Gentile or Roman name, and as Paul became a missionary to the rest of the world, he went by Paul. It wasn't anything, it wasn't like Peter, where Jesus says, you're no longer Cephas, you're now Peter. This was just, it was Paul or Saul. Beginning of the book of Acts, we know him as Saul. And it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, and if you think back a little bit, you go back to Acts chapter 7, and, and Stephen's being stoned, remember? And, and he's the first martyr of, of, the, of the early church, and, and the Jews are throwing stones, and who's standing there? Who's standing there? Yes, Saul, and he's holding the, the coats or the cloaks of these men who are throwing these stones. There's an argument about this. Was he just too young to be a part of this? There's another argument that actually Saul was overseeing the stoning. He was a, it said he was agreeing with what was going on. He was a Pharisee. That's right. That's 
Right. He was, he was a part of the gang. And it says, and then, and then in chapter 8, we know that he's, he starts to persecute the Christians. And then in Acts 9, verse 1, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And then verse 3, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And we know the story. Saul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and everything changed. We get to Acts chapter 25 and 26. It's towards the end of the book of Acts. And the book of Acts, many of you know, was written by Luke. So Luke and Acts were, were essentially kind of one book. It was two parts. And Dr. Luke wrote both of them. And in the book of Acts, we're hearing the story of the early church, the missionary movements, and we get towards the end, and Paul is nearing his journey to go to Rome because he's appealed to Caesar. 25 years later, after the road to Damascus, Paul is before Governor Festus, King Agrippa, and Bernice. King Agrippa is the fourth generation of Herod the Great. It's one of the Herods. And Bernice is his sister, and it's kind of weird. They, they think, some historians say it was an incestuous relationship. She was with them all the time. Later, Bernice actually had an affair with Titus, who conquered Jerusalem. And then Titus became the emperor. So there's just a lot of connections here. And what happens is, is Festus, the governor, governor, he's up in Caesarea, which is just west of Jerusalem, out towards the coast, And Paul has been there for two years in prison. He went to Jerusalem, and the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, didn't like him. They they basically uh, were trying to kill him, and the uh, the Romans saved him and brought him out to Caesarea where he's been in prison. And then we have this scene. It's a court scene. And Festus, Governor Festus, and King Agrippa and Bernice come in with all their pomp and circumstance, and they sit down. And then Paul comes out, and we know that he's in chains, and he's standing before them, and his accusers are around him, so the Jewish religious elite from Jerusalem are all there with him. It's interesting that this story is told in three places in the book of Acts, chapter 9, chapter 22, and chapter 26, a story of of Paul walking the road to Damascus. You should pay attention in the Word of God when things are repeated over and over again. Just like when God calls people's names twice. When the story is repeated over and over again, pay attention. So what I want to do this morning, I got in the habit of this when I would read Scriptures. I'd have our church stand, but I want you to do it in a little bit of a different way this morning. As you stand, I'm going to read these verses to you. I want you to imagine your standing where, where Paul is standing. You're standing before the king, the governor. You've got your accusers standing around you. And as you stand, just imagine what that would be like in this moment. So let's all stand up. And I'm going to read these words to you. Starting at verse 12. And, and, and remember the story. There's already You can go back and read it later. But Paul has already started to give his defense. He's introduced himself. And then he gets to the meat of what he says in verse 12. It says, on one of those journeys... I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in the Aramaic, Saul, Saul, 
why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them. Open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then King Agrippa was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. You can have a seat. Passage begins, says, on one of these journeys, and I want you to see what Paul is saying as he's standing before King Agrippa, and, and as he's giving his defense, he's going, it wasn't just one time that I did this, but over and over again, I would take these journeys. This isn't the first time. And you've got to understand in this whole situation, Paul is focused. He's laser focused on what he's trying to do. His goal is to find these Christians and to haul them in and, and either get them in prison or get them killed. He felt like well, what they were doing is they were polluting the Jewish faith. And he was serving God by doing this. He says, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. You go, well, how, how could the chief priests have authority to go to Damascus to haul Christians into Jerusalem? Well, we know from other sections of history that the, the, that the Caesar could actually commission Jews to go to other places to extradite those that had disobeyed the law. And so Paul had these letters, and he would go to Damascus in this situation to find Christians, probably around the synagogues, because that's where the Christians were hanging out. And here's a little map. I want you to see this. This is 195 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So, so when you say Paul was committed... <laughs> Here's a question for you. When have you ever walked 195 miles for anything? (laughs) Really? And Paul's saying, this is not the first time I did this. Paul is going out on these journeys. He's highly committed to go and find these Christians and to grab them and, and to imprison them and hopefully get them killed. So Paul takes this journey. And then he says this about noon. So when's the sun brightest during the daytime normally? Around noon, right? So around noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, and this is the key here, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. Last year, I took up welding as a hobby. I always wanted to be able to weld. I thought it was a a fun thing. In fact, our church did this thing where we divided up into four teams and we made go-karts. We had to make them from scratch, and then we had a big outreach thing where we invited everybody from the community, and we had a big race with our go-karts. And so I learned to weld. The one thing I learned in all this is never look at the flames, right? Because they are so bright. What they'll do is they'll actually burn spots in your eyes, and you can go permanently blind just by looking at a, at a welding flame. This is what, what really is going on here. This light that's brighter than the sun shines. 
And Paul, and this is the, where we see in this story that his companions that are with him also know that there's a light. They, they, they hear something and there's a light. They don't understand what's being said, but, they, but they, they see and they hear and they're impacted. And then it says, we all fell to the ground. It reminds me of other scriptures, Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah goes into the temple and it says he saw God in all his glory. And Isaiah says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Isaiah recognized that he should have died in the presence of God. Moses told God when he was getting the Ten Commandments, I want to see you. And God says, if you see me, you will die. And so God puts him in the cleft of the rock, and then he, he goes around so, so Moses is able to see just a, a shadow of God, essentially. And Paul's looking up, and he sees this bright light, and what he's, what he's seeing is he's seeing an image of God. And everybody falls to the ground. And then Paul says, I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic. This is a form of Hebrew. It would have been the common language for Jews. And so this voice from from the skies is speaking to Paul in a language that he would have known as a Jew. And the voice says, Saul, Saul. Go back and do that sometime. Look at all the times in the Old and New Testament where God speaks someone's name twice. Samuel, Samuel. Moses, Moses. Mary, Mary. And the voice says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? When I was in elementary school at Crestview Elementary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, we used to play these games, and I was, I was a young, probably third, fourth grade, and I, I thought I was pretty cool, pretty tough. I would pick on the older guys in the upper classes, and I, and I always thought, you know, I, they couldn't do anything, do anything to me because... My brother Steve, who was two years older than me and was the biggest kid on the block, when others would come at me, I would just yell out, Steve! And I could hear my brother from behind (laughs) coming across the playground. Nobody messed with me because of my brother Steve. Eventually, Steve went on to middle school, and then everybody messed with me. But this is the image. This is Jesus talking to Saul at this point, and he's saying, why? He's not saying, why are you persecuting Christians? He's saying, why are you persecuting me? What Jesus is saying is, if you mess with them, you mess with me. That's a, that's a comforting thing when you think about it. When you're, when you're out with people and you face struggles and difficulties because of your faith, they're not messing with you, they're messing with Jesus. It's also a sober reminder in the church that when we treat other believers a certain way, Jesus aligns with us as Christians, and when we mess with them, we're messing with Jesus. At Table Mountain Church, we had a partnership covenant, and in there we would have things like we don't gossip, and we would define it. If it's not necessary, if it's not true, if it's not kind, we don't do it. We had a section in there about supporting leadership. If your leadership is doing the best they can and following the Word of God, you may not prefer the way they're doing it, but when you mess with them, you mess with Jesus. And when we're in the world, we have a big brother. We have Jesus standing next to us. We have the, the God of the universe who can stand against us. And then Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's, a, it's an image of the ox, and there's two ox pulling a cart, 
And every once in a while, one of them would get kind of cantankerous and start, you know, trying to pull, pull the other direction. And a goat at that time was a pointy stick, and they would use it to prod the ox. Nowadays, it's really just a cattle prod. But the, the picture is this is, Paul, you've been going down this road. You thought you were doing the right thing, and all you're doing is you're pushing against the prodding. How many of us as Christians have done that, right? That we get in this place, we go, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this in my own strength. And God is prodding us, and all we're doing is we're kicking against the goats. Paul was walking 195 miles to Damascus to do what he thought was right. And Jesus says, you're just fighting me. You're just fighting me. Imagine Saul in this moment. He doesn't know really who's speaking to him yet. He says, Lord, who are you? And then the response, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Saul is going after Christians who followed Jesus, and now Jesus is speaking to Saul and saying, what you're doing is you're persecuting me. And a bunch of things had to be happening in Saul's mind at that moment. First of all, he had to realize that Jesus is alive. <laughs> He's not dead. Jesus is God. Jesus is in charge. I mean, just you could, you could just see the gears turning on this guy. And then it's really, it's, it's a command. Now get up and stand on your feet. You ever done that as a parent, you know, when your kid's, you know, young child goes down on the ground in a temper tantrum and you finally just go, you need to just get up on your feet, right? Just stand up right now. When this moment, Jesus is saying, get up on your feet because what he's going to do is he's going to commission Saul. He's going to give him, he's going to give him his ministry commission. Jesus says, I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them. Hey, picture the context. He's standing before King Agrippa, and he's standing before Bernice, and he's giving a defense. And who's standing next to him? Do you, when you read the, if you read the passage, who's next to Saul right now? Who's, who's standing around him? It's, it's the priests, it's the Pharisees. They came, you see in the passage, they came all the way from Jerusalem out to Caesarea just so that they could accuse Paul and to get him basically hauled off into prison. And as Paul is sharing this, he's not really attacking these people, but what he's, he's saying is, is what God told me from heaven is that he's going to rescue me from you people. I'm being rescued from you. And even worse than that, or even more challenging than that, I'm being rescued from my own Jewish people, and I'm being sent to the Gentiles, the unclean. Heaven forbid. Everything changed in this moment. And then I want you to notice there's five things here. It's just really quickly, when you, when you, when you look at the commission of Paul, there's five things. First of all, to open their eyes. They, they were blind. They had to see. People who don't know Christ, who are not empowered by the Holy Spirit, are blind. Had to turn them from darkness to light. We have to remember that we, 
when we don't know Christ, we're walking in darkness from the power of Satan. I don't know if you know this or not, but Satan is alive and well, and he goes about seeking whom he may devour. He is powerful. He wants to take you out. He wants to take your marriage out. He wants to take your family out. He wants to take your church out, your community. And then it says to receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So here's the rest of the story. And I want this to, as we kind of conclude here, Couple things. Paul has a life altering encounter. If you look at this, the, in Acts chapter 9, the kind of the rest of the story of what happens, it says Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. What, what I love about the irony of this is, is Paul is going to basically help people to see. And Paul thought he could see, he thought he saw truth, but Paul had to be blinded in order to see. Paul had to be blinded. Open their eyes and see nothing. So they led him by hand in Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This was so life-altering. He's not even eating or drinking water for three days. That's a tough one. You can go, you know, three days without food, but three days without water is hard. And then if you look at the first chapter of Galatians, Paul actually in another place, he says this. He goes, I went to uh, Arabia and Damascus for three years. So Paul, the, 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 this, this so altered everything that he thought that he went away for three years to just to get his bearings straight. And then it says in Galatians that he came back to Jerusalem and he only went to Peter or Cephas and he spent three days with him before he met any of the other disciples or apostles. It took him that long to get this unraveled. It was also a radical obedience that you can't meet Jesus and not have some kind of shift in the way that you act. And so Paul says this, so King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision of heaven. Paul immediately turned around and was obedient to what Jesus had called him to do. And then here I want you to see it was a worldwide missionary movement. There's a good argument that the fact that we're sitting here this morning worshiping Jesus is in many ways, in, in major part, due to the fact that Paul was obedient to the call of Jesus. And we're here. There's a worldwide missionary movement. You look at this, this next verse, it, 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 you see this, this pattern said over and over again in the book of Acts. But, it, but Paul says, first to Damascus, that's where he was. That was his inner circle. And then to Jerusalem, and then to Judea, and then to the Gentiles. In the first part of Acts, the, 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 it's the chapter titles, essentially, of the book of Acts. It says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then you see the whole book of Acts basically paint that picture. And so Paul traveled the world as a missionary. And here's a, here's a map. You, I don't know how well you can see this, but there's four different colors representing four different journeys and what Paul did is he journeyed all over the Roman world. One missionary journey after another. Preaching the gospel, sharing the story, and probably sharing the story of the road to Damascus. You get a sense from Acts 
that even Luke, because he wrote it three times, that Paul probably shared it everywhere he went. It's a good reminder for us, no matter how great your... Some people go, well, I don't have a Damascus story. Well, if you didn't know Jesus, you'd had your back to him. And then at some point, you turned it towards Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. You've got a story. And Paul shared that story all over the world. So why does this matter? So I ask you this question this morning. Have you encountered Jesus? Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates His own love for this, that why we were still sinners, why we were rebelling against God, Christ died for us. Have you encountered Jesus? It takes an adequate expression, uh, experience of love in order to give an adequate expression of love. If you haven't fully experienced Jesus face to face, His love and His grace, you're just, you're just running on your own steam. Have you encountered Jesus? Here's another question. Because that's where it all starts for all of us. Have I encountered Jesus? Have I given my life to Jesus? Am I walking with the Lord right now? And then the second question is, where is your Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and beyond? What does that look like for each of you individually? Who is your family? Who are the people around you that God has placed right around you in your life? Who are your friends? Who are your neighbors? And then who are your communities? And then another great question is, who are the other cultures that are outside of that? That's the way it works. It starts with who's right around me. For, for me, back in Colorado, I love to ride motorcycles. So what did I do? I just started riding motorcycles with people, and then I started to get connected to people who didn't know Jesus, but they just wanted to ride motorcycles. And we'd go on trips, and we would talk, and we'd sit someplace, and eventually we'd have spiritual conversations. That was my Jerusalem. Our neighbors were our Jerusalem. My wife was amazing at this. She would always do this with neighbors. She would bake them some cookies or something, and she, instead of putting it on a disposable dish, she'd put it on her nicest dish, and then she would go over to them and she'd give them that, and, and then they had to bring that dish back to her. She tricked them into coming back to our house. We knew we were in with our neighbors when we'd open up one of our, our doors in our kitchen and all of their keys were hung. We were the key people. If someone was gone and someone needed someone to check something, we had the key and we could go and check our neighbor's house. At Table Mountain Church, we had an RV park and an apartment complex. At any given point, there was over 40 people living on our property. We had a coffee shop. Because it was a valley of 6,000, there wasn't a single coffee shop. And we said there's no place really to meet and hang out and talk. It's very different than in Seattle, right? Every corner has a coffee shop. We had no coffee shop. So my wife and volunteers in our church would run the coffee shop and people in the community would come. We had a fitness center in our facility. Because COVID almost shot, shut down Ben's Fitness Center. And so we said, why don't we repurpose this commercial garage on the property so that we can have people all different ages, students from the high school would walk across and use the fitness center. The EMTs and the fire department would use the fitness center. So when I was in there, I would rub shoulders with these people. See, you always got to be thinking, who's my Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, 
and the ends of the earth. Table Mountain Church worked really hard with, a, with street people in Pueblo, which was 30 minutes away, the city of Pueblo. And we had crazy faith ministry. And on some Sundays, because once a quarter, we'd go and run a service, a worship service, and we'd do a bunch of feeding down there. And I would get a little frustrated because in one of the services, inevitably, there'd be half the people there. And then it would dawn on me, it's because they're all down at crazy faith on Sunday morning serving people. So I had to check my attitude. And then you think, what's beyond? What's beyond for Elam? What's the church plant? What's the ministry? It sounds like you're doing things in Africa. It sounds like maybe there's a trip this summer that's going to happen. Maybe you need to sign up for that. Maybe you need to challenge yourself. And then here's the final question. What is one step of obedience God has asked you to take? Got to get beyond. I, I think these are all great ideas, and you got to start praying. We, we did something at Tamon Church called Pray and Watch, and I would encourage you to do this. We would take, we had a list, of, and we would put down all sorts of names. It was just people we were connected with. People that we liked, people we didn't like, people we, uh, we wanted our kids to hang out with, people we didn't want our kids to hang out with, teachers, business owners. We'd write them down, and in our service, we would just have a moment where we would just throw names out. And the idea is we're just always praying, we're always watching. God will use you. Ignacio was a young man, first generation from Mexico. He was highly educated. He was fluent in Spanish and English. He came to our 20-something ministry in Littleton. And he'd come week after week, and I called him, and he was an antagonistic atheist. He would come into our 20-something group, and he would go around, and he would try to convince people that Jesus wasn't who he said he was, that the Bible was a bunch of falsities, and he, he just would work really hard at this. And I started meeting with Ignacio. I said, Ignacio, let's just meet. So after we, it was called our underground on Thursday nights, I would sit with him, and we would talk, and I would just let him ask questions. And sometimes i go, I don't have a great answer for that. Let me get back to you. But I always did this. I always said, but Ignacio, who do you say Jesus is? That's all I did. After months and months of meeting with Ignacio, I, I, I finally, Ignacio called me and says, hey, Rob, do you want to meet at a coffee shop? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. And I remember telling my wife, I go, I'm going to bring, I'm going to wrestle Ignacio into the kingdom. I've got it all figured out. And I had all my guns ready, and I, was, I had everything figured out. And I got with Ignacio. We met at the coffee shop. We actually met at our church parking lot, and then we drove over to Starbucks. And we're sitting there. And for 45 minutes, I basically went through everything. Jesus is who he says he is. The authority of the Word of God is the reliability and God, evidences of God. And then when we got done, we got in the car, and we went back to Bethany's church parking lot. And I looked over at Ignacio, and I go, Ignacio, are you ready to accept Christ into your life? And he goes, yeah, that's actually why I called, but all you did is talk for 45 minutes. <laughs> I had the privilege last year, Ignacio runs a Bible school in the jungles of Ecuador. And my church, as a gift to me, they knew the story. They sent me, and I, and I got to go and help teach not far from where Jim Elliott and Nate Saint died, they have students from that village that come to the Bible school. And on top of that, Ignacio lives in Boise because his wife, Maylene, 
has a, an issue with, with, with a fungus where she can't live in the jungles anymore. They live in Boise, and they're doing a Spanish-speaking church plant. Ignacio has gone well beyond what I've ever done in my life. And I want you to know one thing in this whole story. It really wasn't about me. It was about Jesus. And all this stuff, what's that step of obedience? It doesn't matter what the outcome is. Just be obedient to what God is calling you to do. And with Ignacio, I thought it was all about me. In the end, it was all about him. It was all about Jesus. Don't forget that. Elam Church, don't forget, it's, it's not about you. God's going to bless what he's going to bless. He's going to draw those people that he is drawing. We just need to be obedient to the simple things that he's called us to do. Let me close in prayer, and the band's going to come up and and finish out the, the morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for, again, your incredible love that meets us where we're at. I know there's so many stories in this room of, of people that met you on some road, someplace. We're thankful for your incredible love that reaches down, reaches out to us. For your grace, your love that when we were sinners, when we had our backs turned to you, that you still loved us, that you drew us to yourself. We are thankful for those that came before us, the Apostle Paul and the many missionaries and others before the church planners, the the group of families that started Elam back in the 1800s (laughs) that have carried on that faithfulness of Paul and those missionary journeys that he took. God, if there's someone in this room who doesn't know you, I pray that they would discover you, that they would meet you, that they would give their lives to you this morning. Father, help us to recognize those that you've placed around us, our family, our friends, our communities, the cultures that are right on our doorstep and beyond. Help us to be faithful to loving those people and sharing our faith, sharing our story. And in 2024, God, help us to find that one thing, that one act of obedience to help us move in this direction. Help Eom to discover that. Help the individuals here for me, for my wife, Beth, as we work with the Pacific Northwest. Bless us, guide us, give us incredible wisdom. I pray for Ryan and his family, for the staff here, that you would protect them, that you would encourage them, that they would find this next year is the most exciting year they've ever had as they trust in you. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.